You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. I'm Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, Chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is September 11th, 2022, and this is episode 190 of Lighthearted. In a moment, we're going to listen to an interview I did in person a couple of weeks ago when I went to Cape Cod. On my way to the Cape, I interviewed three people in Situate, Massachusetts, about Situate Lighthouse. It's a place I know well. I think it was a really interesting conversation. Usually at this point in the podcast, we talk about something interesting that's happened on this date in Lighthouse history. But because this episode falls on September 11th, I thought we should mention a special memorial. Right, Jeremy, I agree. In 2010, at Great Captain Island in Greenwich, Connecticut, a memorial was dedicated that honored local people who lost their lives in the 9-11 tragedy in 2001. Greenwich lost more people on 9-11 than any other community in Connecticut. A bronze plaque inscribed with the names of 26 people with ties to Greenwich who died on 9-11 is displayed on a granite slab next to the renovated Great Captain Island Lighthouse, which was built in 1868. Bennett Fisher, one of the people remembered on the memorial, was one of the original fundraising team members for the lighthouse. I've been on the island a couple of times, and it's really a beautiful memorial. It's right near the lighthouse. So, Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Situate Lighthouse and today's guests. Sure, Jeremy. The town of Situate on Boston's south shore has a small but protected harbor and it developed a significant fishing industry by the late 18th century. Entering the harbor was difficult because of shallow water and mud flats and local citizens petitioned the town's selectmen for a lighthouse in 1807. A 25-foot stone tower was built at Cedar Point and Situate Lighthouse went into service with a fixed white light in April 1812. The first keeper was Simeon Bates, who stayed at the station until his death in 1834. Bates and his wife, Rachel, had nine children, including two daughters named Rebecca and Abigail. Those two sisters would become heroic figures in the history of American lighthouses, as we discussed in the interview uh, we're going to hear in a minute. In 1827, a 15-foot brick extension and new lantern were added to the lighthouse in order to increase its visibility. Construction on the first Minot's Ledge Lighthouse offshore from Situate began in 1847, and the tower was first lit on January 1, 1850. Situate light remained in service with a fixed red light. Then the tower at Minot's Ledge was destroyed in a storm on April 16, 1851, and Situate light regained some importance. Then, when the second Minot's Ledge light was lighted on November 15, 1860, Situate light went dark on the same night, seemingly forever. The lantern was removed from the tower. A small light was established on a jetty near the lighthouse, and keepers again lived in the house next to the old lighthouse. The jetty light was automated in 1924, and a keeper was no longer needed. The lighthouse property was sold to the town of Situate in 1917. A replica lantern was installed in 1930, and in 1968, custody of the site was awarded to the Situate Historical Society. The Society cares for 13 historic properties in Situate. The Historical Society had the lighthouse relighted as a private aid to navigation in 1994. The grounds around the lighthouse are open all year, and the lighthouse is sometimes opened for special open houses. 
The interview we're about to hear was recorded at the Situate Maritime and Irish Mossing Museum, and it includes three people. David Ball is the former president of the Situate Historical Society and the author of a book on Cedar Point and the Lighthouse. His service as a volunteer for the Historical Society goes back to the 1980s. Bob Chesia is a Situate resident and the new president of the Historical Society. And Bob Gallagher has been the resident caretaker, or modern-day keeper, of Situate Light since 2009. He's also a high school history teacher. So let's listen to that conversation now. I'm here at the Maritime and Irish Mossing Museum in beautiful Situate, Massachusetts. I'm about to talk with three guests about Situate Lighthouse, which I would say is one of the most historic lighthouses in the United States, uh, and certainly a beloved landmark of Boston's South Shore. My guests today are Bob Chesia, who is the president of the Situate Historical Society, the organization that manages the lighthouse. Bob Gallagher is the live-in caretaker, or I would say modern-day keeper of the lighthouse. David Ball is the past president and longtime volunteer for the Historical Society, and Dave and I go back some years. I've brought uh, tours and friends to the Lighthouse over the years a number of times, and Dave's always been uh, very accommodating and hospitable. So I want to thank you for that, for that, Dave. And I want to thank you all so much for being on the podcast and for hosting me today at this museum. Thank you all. All right, so uh, as I mentioned, the Situate Historical Society manages Situate Lighthouse. I believe it also manages 10... Uh, additional historic sites besides the lighthouse. So one of them is the place where we are right now, the Maritime and Irish Mossing Museum. I don't know which one of you wants to take this, uh, Bob Chesia, perhaps. Uh, can you describe uh, this museum for listeners, listeners who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, this is a museum that's uh, it's kind of like a hidden treasure. People really don't know what's in here till they come. And when they come, they're, I would say, more than impressed. It talks about Irish mossing, which brought the Irish to Situate, and mm -hmm. as a result, we're the most Irish town in the country per capita. Mm. We also have exhibits on the Mass Humane Society, shipwrecks, shipbuilding, captains, sea captains. Uh, it's got a lot in here, and it's a great place to stop. We actually maintain, believe it or not, 13 properties, the Historical Society. Right. Seven owned by the town and six we own outright, which keeps okay. us very busy, and I think that's maybe why Dave threw me under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> so my number was a little low. I said uh, 11. It's actually 13 sites. Correct, yeah. So for people who don't know, what is, is or was Irish mossing exactly? Irish moss is a seaweed that grows on the rocks. You can har It's underwater. You can harvest it uh, two hours before low tide to two hours afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it's used in a multitude of products. It's in a emulsifier, a stabilizer, a fining agent. So if you like to brush your teeth in the morning, you use Irish moss. If you like to eat ice cream, Irish moss, chocolate milk, pharmaceuticals. If you make beer at home, mm -hmm. Irish moss. Two-thirds of the Irish moss at one time went to make lager beer. What it's a fining agent, what it does is it clarifies your beer, it takes the haze out. Okay. So if you want clear beer, that's what it does, and you can try to say clear beer after you've had a few, it's pretty <laughs> difficult. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's just used in so many products, and people don't even realize what it is. Mm -hmm. But it was a great industry for Situate. The Irish came, and they didn't take anyone's job. They started their own industry, and they actually brought jobs to Situate. Mm -hmm. And it's not that expensive to start. You need a boat, a rake, 
a beach to dry it on, and then a place to store it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Interesting to hear that Situate is the largest Irish, uh, per, per capita Irish community in, uh, in yeah, America. I that didn't was, know that. That was the first wave. The second wave was when Lawson built Dreamwald. He mm-hmm. had a thousand men just to clear the property. Mm-hmm. So his population was 2,500. So he brought in, he was Irish. He brought a lot of Irish in, Cape Verdeans and Italians. We had the largest mm-hmm. Cape Verdean per capita at one time. Oh. So, so Dave, just a little bit more about you. You uh, recently stepped down as president of the Situate Historical Society. I believe you've been involved since the 80s, at least. Yeah, the 80s, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you can say a little bit about how you first got involved with the society and why did you recently step down? So, in the early 1980s, uh, I started volunteering mostly at Situate Light on those days when the lighthouse was open. The president at that time was Kathleen Laidlaw. Yeah, I remember he, her. Yeah, she was a fascinating woman, was president of the society for 30 years before I took over. So I started volunteering in the uh, 80s, very slowly at first, just volunteering whenever the lighthouse was open. My neighborhood uh, is Cedar Point, and there's a neighborhood association out there, and we would occasionally meet at the uh, cottage for our monthly meetings mm-hmm. in those days. So I was in there and out of there quite frequently. Yeah. So that's how I became involved. And then, and then I decided I was going to write a book on the history of Cedar Point. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, and I, I was doing a lot of research. I got the book uh, self-published, I think around 1992, And at that point, it happened. What is the it? Well, I got a call from the head of the trustees at that time, and I was asked if I would be willing to go on to the the board of trustees. And I said I would. And then shortly after that, I was kind of told I had to be the chairman of the board of trustees. (laughs) And then after that, I was pretty much told I had to be the president. Funny how that happens. Yeah, Yeah, isn't it? It's it's happened to all three of us. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention your book. I have it, and it's a, it's a great reference on uh, Cedar Point and the Lighthouse, certainly. So, Dave, why, what led you to uh, recently step down as president? Well, there, there were two reasons, really. The pandemic, uh, obviously, was a, was a factor. Everything was closed down, I, and I had been thinking about stepping down anyway. And then when everything was shut tight, I thought that was a good time, so I wouldn't be throwing a lot of work on the new president, who is right here with me, <laughs> Mr. Bob Cheshire. But the other reason is, the, the last president before me, Kathleen Laidlaw, had been president for 30 years. I just didn't want to challenge that. I didn't want to be known as a person that wrecked that that record, so yeah. I stepped down. Okay. Well, you did so much for this for this community, for the Lighthouse, and a lot of other things. So, Bob, what led you to uh, replace uh, Dave as the president of society? Well, as we've discussed, um, it was a job that just sort of was handed to me by basically by Dave. Yeah. <laughs> and as you could, as we know, you really it's tough to say no to Dave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I didn't say no to Dave, but. Sometimes I wonder when I get an alarm call at 3.30 in the morning to go check a building out and so on and so forth or catch a mouse at the man house. But it is, it's very rewarding and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, I get a lot of 
pleasure out of doing it. Uh-huh. Keeps you very, very busy, and it probably keeps you out of a lot of trouble. But it's it is fun. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. But it, it's it's kind of unusual for a town of this size to have so many uh, properties under the historical society. I think it's pretty unusual. Well, we're very proud of our town, to say the least. And yeah. we have a lot of volunteers that are incredible mm-hmm. in every aspect, and it makes it easy for me, and it made it easy for Dave. Yeah. I thought something might be coming because Dave would send me to like a seaweed symposium at, be, at UMass Boston <laughs> or you would have to meet these people and whatever or take care of this and mm-hmm. you know well I want you to go to a certain house well I don't know anything about yeah. that but you will <laughs> so I sort of sort of thought that might be happening it was grooming and you. it turned out to be true <laughs> yeah yeah um, so Bob Gallagher let me turn to you at this point can you describe how you became the uh, live-in caretaker slash keeper? A little more than 14 years ago, I was actually living in an apartment in this building, in the Maritime Mossing Museum. Oh, really? And through living here and doing odds and ends and making what contribution I could, I just developed a relationship with the society. Um, my, the predecessor at the light, her name was Ruth Downton. The call went out for new keepers, 100 People looked at the application, 26 returned it. It was an intimidating application, I guess. Uh, and we were all interviewed in late July of, well, I guess that would be 2008. Mm-hmm. And then in August, it was August 8th, we just marked the anniversary uh, a couple weeks ago of our being appointed, my wife and I and my daughter moved into the light. We weren't able to move in until the following February, but we had this relationship. I think they were comfortable with the teacher and the job. Mm-hmm. Um, a high school teacher over in the next town, Marshfield, and yeah. um, and I had a little bit of a track record with them, so they knew that I what what I might be capable of. I'd like to add a couple of other things too. When we did the interview with Bob, um, he told us that his intent would be, if he was selected as keeper, to write a blog. Yeah. Uh, about his life and, and activities at the lighthouse, and he was the only one that mentioned that. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a plus. Yeah. But we knew right away that he was going to be selected. Quite frankly, he was clearly, clearly, clearly the best candidate to be living there. Yeah. Somehow, uh, this whole thing was this, the whole vacancy was discovered by the media, and it was put out on. Uh, a number of different websites. We still are getting. Well, I don't know. If, I haven't still getting applicants. I, yeah, <laughs> I went still, on for a while. Yeah. Inquiries. Yeah, they all could do many, many more things than I can do too. <laughs> Trust me, it's still going on. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Things things get on the internet. They live there forever. Uh, so, as you mentioned, Bob Gallagher, you uh, are a teacher at Marshfield High School. I think you've been there quite a few years. Two-part question, what do you teach, and do you sometimes, uh, do, do students get to visit the lighthouse if they take your class? So I teach a junior year course in U.S. history, the 20th century, so that is mm-hmm. not as good a fit. And I teach a government course and along with a philosophy course, so it isn't, isn't a natural fit um, to bring my students to the light. That said, they come a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're always around, and they'll give me a shout-out when they see me at my desk. Um, there have been people who've come in inappropriate hours. That's always a fun thing. Um, but the that really belongs to US One. It's the the lighthouse story is the main story anyway of the Bates family and its role in the War of 1812. That belongs to US One, and uh, the sophomores really should come over and and get a feel for it along with 
a lot of the history that's in Marshfield too. It's a great thing, uh, a history teacher living in a, such a historic lighthouse. I have done everything that I've thought of to this point to know, learn how to teach better with the house. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I look at. I look at it as a teaching opportunity every day. Probably a learning opportunity every day for you too. Well, this, I, we certainly have binder after binder of information now on different elements of the house and the different phases, I guess I think of it. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak on all the different stories and it's been a blast. And I, I know I'm a better teacher for it. And, you know, every day somebody's going to tell me an Etrusco story. How do you beat that? Uh, speaking kind of uh, connected to what you just said about the property, uh, Dave brought it up a little while ago, uh, kind of on the side here. But uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, Situate Light Station, Tower and House, it's to me, uh, as far as I know, it's the oldest combination lighthouse tower, keeper's house combination in the United States. Right. Do I have that right? Uh, Dave, you want to respond to that? If you recall, Jeremy, I asked you that question because you're the true expert on American lighthouses, maybe even worldwide. But anyway, I asked you that question. Jeremy, is the situate light, when you consider the tower in the Keeper's Cottage, the oldest complete lighthouse in the United States? And I was happy you agreed with what we had already considered, that in fact it is. So that's great news for us. <laughs> yeah, well, we're talking uh, 1811 when they were built, although I think the light actually went into service in early 1812. Uh, but uh, I was saying to you earlier, I think the Keeper's House at Anasquam Lighthouse in Gloucester, Mass., uh, is a little older, but uh, largely changed, and the tower was rebuilt a couple of times. So again, as far as a combination tower and, and Keeper's House, I think you've got the oldest. I grew up right up the street from the lighthouse, and... One of the great surprises to me was that the lighthouse had ever changed. That one, you know, what we used as the kitchen, uh, David and I went up to the National Archives when, shortly after I was first appointed to do some research, and for $177, Simeon Bates built what I used as a kitchen. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1817. Okay. And then the second keeper um, built what we use as this utility wing now in the 1830s, and a naval officer said that shouldn't have happened. and. Um, was very critical, and he was one of the guys first driving the boat to take our light out of service and replace it with the with the light at Minot eventually, mm -hmm. um, Ensign Carpenter. But the notion that the lighthouse had ever changed at all, this is now a really big element when I do give tours or when people visit, that the profile that we've always been accustomed to did change, and we yeah. should think about the what's the same and what's what's been altered and why yeah. and especially for little kids it becomes a real time machine mm -hmm. yeah the tower also of course went through changes yeah. the uh it was shorter originally right yeah. and uh, of course the lantern that's on there is not the original it's a, it's a replica uh but so yeah the property's gone through quite a few changes over the years so let's talk a little bit more about its early history why was uh situate like created why why was it built in the first place I like to put it in a little bit of a bigger context. Under President Jefferson, there was the Quarantine Act. Um, he, Jefferson didn't want uh, American shipping going overseas and uh, running afoul of Napoleon or the king. And as a result, all the trade was going to have to be intercoastal. And to get into the harbors, um, Situate Harbor at that time in particular, was difficult, dangerous, and a lighthouse was needed. And one of the leading captains here in town, if not the leading captain, was named Jesse Dunbar. And he petitioned the Congress for a light at Cedar Point. 
they got appropriation put in place and three men, Hammond, Gill, and Gill, uh, came and built Situate Light. Um, one of the first things I was ever asked to do was go into the basement of the cottage and I'm saying, three guys built this, dug this hole, when? <laughs> um, and that stone is still there. So Light comes into service. The first keeper is Simeon Bates. There's a derby for, the, um, for that job and we found those letters as well and people gave a lot of reasons why they should be appointed and um, Jesse Dunbar responded saying, no matter what you say, I can come back with every signature or whatever you want, I'll trump you. Hmm. And Simeon Bates becomes appointed to the, to the keepership. He has nine children. Uh, we have their family Bible and lists their birthdays. And it includes this, these two daughters, Rebecca and Abigail, who during the last year of the War of 1812, the war had become kind of very much a war of terrorism. Famously Toronto, then York is burned and Washington DC is burned. And Situate Harbor is attacked in June of 1814. Um, David helped sponsor a guy to go to England to come back with some records some time ago that showed that the Rosebud, one of the ships, had potatoes and water on it, and those had been confiscated. And when the British returned in early September of 1814, Rebecca and Abigail, 21 and 17, though the kids' stories make them out to be younger, 21-year-old, yeah. 17-year-old took up a fife, which is in the house today, and a drum, and they mimicked the sound of a mustering militia. Mm -hmm. um, it's a story I never believed as a kid. Mostly because growing up out there, you know, the wind will take anything I say and send it to Plymouth before it's out of my mouth. But I believe it now very much so that that's, this event happened. I'm mm -hmm. the worst because I'm the converted. <laughs> and yeah. that the light is saved. In fact, the town is saved by these two girls. And that's really the, the first chapter, the first phase of Situate Light. Yeah, the Situate Army of Two, I would say, is probably the thing, if Lighthouse buffs, if they know a little bit about Situate Light, that's probably the story they're going to know. It's a very strange story in that for about 45 to 50 years, no one told it. Yeah. And then in the 1860s, it began to be retold routinely. And it's very, very strange. Even within the family, they didn't all believe it. Yeah. Dave, you want to add something? What I find interesting is that newspapers out of state, especially southern states, uh, reported on the attack by the by the British right at the time that it happened but uh, newspapers around here from what we can see didn't have much mention of it there was a major discovery however in the I believe it was the Brockton Enterprise around 1900 mm -hmm. there was a woman that had just passed away and she had been born around 1807 and in the obituary it told the story of how she and her mother and her father were in a church in Hingham, and this would be in September uh, of 1814, and somebody rushed into the church and said that the men had to go to Situate to help fight back the, the attack that was getting ready to, to happen hmm. with the British uh, on the harbor. And then, according to the obituary, a few hours later, her father returned to hang them, and everybody in the family was happy. And the father had reported, and this is all in the obituary, mm -hmm. that the the army of two, Abigail and Rebecca, had repelled the British on their own. Her name was Frances Hobart Sewell, and she says the keeper's daughters fooled them. We also found in the National Archives doing our homework that in October, of 1814, Simeon Bates wrote a letter asking if he should take the apparatus down and hide it. 
should there be any repercussions. He doesn't say what's happened. Yeah. It's as if it's generally known. But he asks, should I take the apparatus down and move it inland and bury it? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's circumstantial. But Mrs. Sewell's, you know, the problem with Rebecca and Abigail's element was that nobody believed them. They had a pretty big financial incentive in telling you they would charge you 10 or 15 cents to write out these little affidavits. And they were always at the mercy of one brother or another. When they moved back to the Bates house, they lived there, but they didn't own the house. Their brother Thomas did uh. after their father passed in the 1830s. So they were always, they had very difficult lives. Mm -hmm. Neither married, they didn't have a lot of resources, so they would get 10 or 15 cents yeah. to, mm. to tell you the tale. Um, but nobody paid Mrs. Sewell. Right. And that's, that's what makes it, yeah. that's why, I, that's what makes it so, so, so convincing. I agree. That's really interesting. I had, I had forgotten that aspect. Jeremy, Jeremy, we had another event there um, in the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. Don't give up the ship battle was right off Light. Good point. And the Shannon and the Chesapeake, in 15 minutes, it was one of the bloodiest naval battles ever. Mm -hmm. Captain Lawrence thought he could defeat Captain Broke. Captain Broke was probably the premier artillery, naval artillery commander in the world at that time. He took the ship out. Captain Lawrence was mortally wounded. He told the men as they carried him below to fire faster mm -hmm. and don't give up the ship. His buddy was Oliver Hazard Perry. Mm -hmm. He flew the don't give up the ship flag in Lake Erie when he famously defeated the British fleet and the enemy is ours and he described what ships mm -hmm. were when he had captured. And that was right off Situate Light. Yeah. And mm -hmm. some of our historic trustees in the Historical Society figured it out where uh -huh. it was. Okay, I think I remember uh, something about uh, people at Boston Light in outer Boston Harbor, you know, a bit to the north, uh, being able to see that, but I guess maybe it would have been. You almost certainly could have seen it. You yeah. could see it and you could mm -hmm. definitely hear it. Yeah, wow. That's, I'm glad you brought that up, Bob. Thank you. That's tremendous history. Uh, so why don't we jump ahead a little bit, and uh, why was Situate Lighthouse discontinued as an ATA navigation in 1860? It was discontinued because Minus Light was lit. And Minus Light was lit exactly 162 years ago today. Yeah. So it was not to be confused with Minus. So it was, it's actually been extinguished more than it's been lit, I believe. Just to reiterate, we're recording, people will hear this later, but we're recording on August 22nd. So the second, we're talking the second Minus Light, the first one uh, established in 1850, uh, fell over in a storm in 1851, killing two young assistant keepers, but rebuilt. Situate Light, as much as we love it, and we do, never worked. And we have this in naval records of the shipping that continued to end up on the rocks across this coast. We'll later talk about the grounding of Etrusca, which was mentioned before, but in the digging out of Etrusco, they found the bones of another ship from the 1850s right in front of Situate Light, the Elizabeth, if I remember it right. And David is nodding yes, I'll take that as a validation. So it never worked. You know, you mentioned it not being lit till 1812. Well, as soon as it was turned on in October of 1811, mariners requested it be turned off because it had, didn't have a distinguishing characteristic. And it wasn't until April of 1812 that it had a distinguishing characteristic and came into full-time service. But mm -hmm. there were lots of complaints about Situate Light. Um, this Navy officer in the 1830s said this light is a hazard. We have to have a light out on Collimore's Ledge. Why are we holding off on this? The longer this is up, the you know false sense of security is, is coming from having a light here. Mm -hmm. And 
young Tommy Richardson. It turns out, 162 years ago today, he was, uh, extinguished the light and saw a minor light relit that night. I don't like telling this element of it, but it we have lots of reason to believe Sitchwood Light was ineffective. Interesting point of view. You know, our lighthouse establishment, as you probably all know, was not the most efficient uh, organization in the first half of the uh, the 1800s. And oh, no. It got better in the, uh, after 1852 when they formed a lighthouse board, but most of our early lighthouses were not well built or, or really very efficient. So uh, moving along, what, what happened at Situate Lighthouse between uh, 1860 when it was uh, extinguished because of uh, the new uh, Minot's light coming into service? between then and the early 1900s, what happened? Thanks to the work of a historian named Lyle Nyberg, it's been discovered fairly recently that there were people squatting in Situate Light. We had some hint of this from a historian who contributed a great deal to Situate Light, her name Duncan Bates Todd, of that same Bates family. Um, she mentions this Samuel Hall and him living there potentially in the 1870s and she even has an, a family earlier in the 1860s that split time there. Um, but families would come, it seems, and squat there. And one was the family of a man named Sylvanus Smith. He was a shipbuilder. And Lyle discovered in researching his wife, in particular, major suffragette, that they went there routinely over about a 20-year period. Um, he found a photograph of Sylvanus Smith shingling the roof there. And it's in this Judith... Smith's diary that they were routinely at Situate Light in the 1870s and 1880s. Mm. We know that in the 1880s, Situate was requested, or certainly this, maybe the federal government requested, that Situate become a harbor of refuge. And at this point, the jetties, the first of the jetties was built. This was under the uh, Secretary of War, Robert Todd Lincoln, President Lincoln's son, surviving son. Mm -hmm. And it's at that point in, I think, 1891 that John Prouty becomes the tender of that spindle light, and he takes over in the cottage. We have his logs, and he'll give way in the early 20th century to John Cushman, who was actually there at the light longer than anyone else. He's there from 1903 to 1937. Mm -hmm. It's his record that I got to beat. He will, I'm sure of it. But the, the spindle light you refer to is a, a light at the end of the breakwater yes. near, the, near the lighthouse there, and that's there's still an automated light in that position, right? Yeah. It, was auto, it was automated in the early 20s, John Cushman received a letter saying, um, as your light will be automated on June 8th, 1924, your services are no longer required on June 8th, 1924. But he did stay on. They had a little store in this wing that we use as a utility wing. And this is even connected, connected to Sylvanus Smith. Because one of our neighbors has had the chairs from that store and brought them back and gave them to us. He was a descendant of that family. Um, David knows that story better than I do. It turns out that Lyle uncovered this entire gap that we had in the record keeping, and it brought us very much up to date into the 20th century. How did the town of Situate come to own the lighthouse, and then how did the Historical Society come to? And clear something up for me. Is the Historical Society officially the owner of the lighthouse? Or the town is still officially the owner, and the society manages it. How do, how is that the, set up? The society does not own the lighthouse. It's the town of Sitchwood that bought the lighthouse from the federal government. Mm -hmm. um, however, in the late 1960s, I think it was 1968, Kathleen Laidlaw, the former president, went to town meeting with an article on the warrant asking that the town give to the Sitchwood Historical Society custody and administration of the lighthouse. 
so the society essentially has a great deal of oversight of everything that takes place there. And I guess probably even then the, the, the voters at town meeting recognized that the town was not going to, because the town hadn't done a good job. Uh, they were talking about even just boarding up the, the cottage and walking away at that point. So thankfully, Kay Laidlaw, Kathleen Laidlaw, as she was also called, she was able to prevail upon town meeting to get the lighthouse into the hands of the society in terms of custody and administration. In the early 60s, a family named Cole was living in the lighthouse, and they gave me home movies of their, be the parents and and the next generation and even grandchildren. And I'm still pretty friendly with some of those grandchildren. And you can see a sign on the door to bring you into the tower that says condemned. And in 1967, five board five-man board of the Situate Board of Selectmen, two out of five voted to raise the whole property. Mm-hmm. And this prompted Mrs. Laidlaw to go to town meeting and say, that can't happen. Um, the legislation that gave the town control of the light is right by my desk, where I work each day, and in it, the fine print says, the site has to be, has to be maintained as a historic site. Mm-hmm. That was part of the agreement, otherwise it goes back to the federal government. Mm-hmm. And so the town couldn't really walk away, and they found this workaround. There had been a precedent for it. You mentioned the society managing other buildings. The grist mill was given to the society and the condition that the society run it. Mm -hmm. Um, Similar to the Cudworth House, which is a 1700 house, which was a longtime headquarters for the society. That was given to the society in custody administration. So she had a precedent, Mm -hmm. and following the lighthouse, all these other properties, Lawson Tower and any number of others, Man House, Old Oak and Bucket House, on and on, right on up to the Bates House. They were all given to the society under those same terms. Yeah. I remember seeing pictures of the lighthouse during its uh, its uh, down years, <laughs> which was quite a while, with, with no lantern on it and just looking basically like a like a ruin. And it was generally referred to as the old situate lighthouse, and old not meant as a, as a compliment. <laughs> but uh, when was the replica lantern put on it? You're talking about the the lantern room? Yeah. That was put on in 1930. I was on the planning board in the 1970s, and there was a guy by the name of Quinn. He actually lived in this house, this where, where we are today, the Maritime Museum. And he was on the planning board with me. And at the end of the meetings on a number of occasions, he would tell us about how he and others had worked to come up with a design for the lantern room. They tried to come up with as close of a replica to the original one mm-hmm. as they possibly could. There was a very nice picture of Situate Light taken in 1857 that's in the National Archives. And they were able to come quite close to that lantern room to, yeah. for the replica. Yeah. So that's when it happened. Yeah, I remember that picture you talked about the National Archives. There was a, basically a survey of the a photographic survey of the lighthouses that were standing at that time uh, in the late 1850s, and that, I think that's probably the only picture of the lighthouse with its its uh, original lantern, right? right. Yeah, only one we've ever found. Right. Yeah. Tell me about how the lighthouse was relighted in 1994. Joe Lebhardt uh, was a trustee at that time of the Historical Society good friend of mine. He was also uh, in Coast Guard, Coast Guard Reserves at that point in time in his life. Uh, today he's living up in Maine. But anyway, he, um, he and Kathleen Laidlaw 
decided that they really would like to get the lighthouse relit as a private aid to navigation. Prior to that, uh, there had been uh, some lights put up in the lantern room that shone just toward the shore. There were panels of plywood that blocked any possibility of the light shining out to sea. So Joe Leperitz went through the whole process of applying to Coast Guard to get these, this light uh, designated as a private aid to navigation. Yeah. And after a long and somewhat arduous application process, he got it to happen. And in 1994, it was relit, and it was, there was a big celebration. I was there that night. Uh, I would guess there may have been 300 people or more yeah. that were there to, to observe the lighting for the first time. It was quite a dramatic thing to see that all happen. Yeah, I remember when it happened. I wasn't able to be there, but that was pretty big lighthouse news at the time. Uh, so uh, over the years, the Historical Society has certainly accomplished a lot there. I think there's been work on the lighthouse and house a number of times. I think there was a pretty major work done around 2004. Yeah, one of the projects in uh, 2004 5 was they replaced some of the, ex the exterior cores of bricks. Yeah. And um, we've had it, um, also after that, we had it repainted. Uh, Danny McAdam, who's a commercial painter, did it for free. Okay, that's a good and deal. And when he did it, we had, uh, was it Bill Caradonna? Yeah. Go up in the man lift, and he looked at the lantern room, and he wasn't very impressed, to say the least. So we went to CPC. We got $160,000. We couldn't find anyone to do any work. We had, Bobby actually finally found an engineering company to look at it, hmm. Rivermore Engineering, and that started the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. Bobby and I went up, we did a little bit of, we pulled off some boards, and we noticed that the uh, wrought iron that goes into the concrete base was gone in spots. So we had to go up with two by fours, sixes, or whatever, sure enough, for Hurricane well, Henry. I just carried the wood. <laughs> the engineer, the engineer was a high school classmate of mine. After searching for engineers for about two and a half years, I happened to come across Anne, and and we signed her up. And she indicated that what we thought was a cosmetic issue of copper failing was much more. And thankfully, the town uh, and, and the powers that be have looked at over and and come up with some funding to do it properly. So after. Uh, 90 plus years, we will see a restored lantern room, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully here in the next five, six, eight months. Excellent. What's the status of that project as we speak here? Uh, the status now is we have an uh, OPM, which is an owner's project manager, and we also have um, a preservation company that is going to do engineering, architectural work, and get a bid package together so we can send it out to bid. Mm-hmm. We had gone to CPC, and TPC, CPC was very generous. They gave us $2 million to rebuild the, the lantern room and take care of the rest of the lighthouse. And we've applied for grants, which we've got one 200000 grant from the state, a $5,000 grant from New England Lighthouse Lovers, which we will spend first. But we are hoping to have this done in less than a year, with any luck. Yeah, well, that is <laughs> but fantastic. You know how construction goes. Yeah, yeah. So hard to say if that work could be going on through the 2023 season. Um, Pretty hard to I say. I believe probably. it will be uh, 2023. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it may not. The 20 if people want to see the lighthouse without uh, scaffolding or any kind of work going on. That kind of thing. They might want to. Yeah. Not come in 2023. Either yeah. come now or come in 2024. Would probably be a great yeah. time to visit. Yeah. 
So I look forward to so seeing we that. Have, we, I think we have, uh, once we get the contractor to do the work, and uh, I think we're going to be pretty specific about what we want. We want someone that has actually done lighthouses mm -hmm. and historical lighthouses at that because it's on the National Historic Register. Yeah. And there's a whole set of specifications, guidelines for what they have to do. Absolutely. So I think that will maybe color her a little bit, and then we can choose. We've had a couple of people look at it already, and we're happy with both of them. Mm-hmm so far but we'll see what happens yeah yeah well, that's pretty exciting that's really exciting yeah looking forward to seeing that that happen so bob gallagher let me let me turn back to you as far as uh, living at the lighthouse uh there i know there's a lot a lot of aspects we could talk about with that but uh just in general what what's been what has it been like living at such a historic property that's also a major tourist attraction there's an on-site security role no, I don't think the, the cottage or the tower would be in very good shape if there wasn't somebody there. Um, the numbers are just astronomical, the number of people that are out there in a given day. It's somewhere anywhere between one and 3,000 people, regardless of the weather. Um, the summer of the pandemic, two summers ago, the numbers, because there was nowhere else to go, mm -hmm. <laughs> were even higher. Mm -hmm. There are 39 things on the do's and don'ts list. Hang a wreath at Christmas time. I'm trying to figure out how to do that if they take the top off. I think I have an idea. Mm -hmm. I try, I come up with essentially a maintenance, a maintenance list each year. We try to address that year to year, whether it's electrical, whether it's plumbing, whether it's carpentry or roofing, siding. And we're just gonna keep the place in as good a shape as we can. Mm -hmm. um, I've replaced each window, but one. Um, we've improved the insulation a thousand fold. Wiring has been improved. There were really weren't any plugs. My predecessor, I think, ran everything off an extension cord before prior to my getting there. She must have eaten dinner in the dark every day. Mm. There was no, there's not a single plug in the room she used in the dining room before mm -hmm. I got there. And then I've expanded it so that we have quite a few webcams that are connected through the blog, and that's become an element so that people don't have to come down um, during storms and they can stay home and see the action. Um, there are really only three things not to like. One is when little kids are on our beach. And I can't tell if they're in trouble or if they're having fun. Yeah. The screech. Right. Which one is it? Yeah. One is when people come down at night because at night, particularly in front of the light, it's just an amphitheater and I can hear everything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything. I just wrote about this yesterday for the blog mm -hmm. about what we've heard lately. And people that when they come down and put themselves in harm's way. Um, we have a gentleman who's donated a good amount to this maritime museum and his brother-in-law his brother's mother-in-law was once thrown off the seawall by a rogue rave and i saw it happen mm -hmm. on an october storm she was thrown from the seawall into the rose bushes Holy cow. and you know we i thought i could still can't believe she didn't break a hip though he he told me she was the cover color of an eggplant two mm -hmm. days later when people come down and put themselves in harm's way that that's hard to watch yeah um but everything else the stories the enthusiasm, mm -hmm. the little kids, the folks reading the different things that we posted and you know we've had opportunities to, to add to some of the displays. We have a bell that came down, a maritime bell that was on a, a bell boat, Graves Light. We have that bell now and that has led to all sorts of stories and conversations. Mm -hmm. We placed a stone in a memory of Etrusco and that let us tell another story about a, a, a Cold War era radio station that was based here in town so it's it's just finding the connections and letting watching people get so enthusiastic about it yeah. and you just want to feed that over and over again mm -hmm. i happen to love the gardening 
So that's another big element. Love, love, love to be out in the gardens. Mm -hmm. um, and that, again, leads to a thousand conversations that are priceless. So you mentioned the, the blog. So let's talk a little bit more about that now. Uh, I believe the, the blog is uh, lives these days at situate-light.com, right? So S-C-I-T-U-A-T-E, uh, situate-light, L-I-G-H-T.com. I was just looking at it. Uh, I've uh, read it, you know, certainly over the years. I see you've done now, uh, it's getting towards 300 entries, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. You kind of maybe already answered this to some degree, but why do you uh, do the blog? Why do you keep doing it? It's the summer of... 2008, my daughter was at a camp in the Marshfield Hills, and I was driving each day to get her. And as I would take this 15-minute drive, I was saying, well, how can I differentiate myself from this mob that's applying to be the lightkeeper? Mm. Um, my wife is a very gifted photographer. I'm not half bad. And I said, in the interview, I yelled her, you don't know this, but we're going to have a blog. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... I do like to be ahead on technological things. It was one of the things that, mm -hmm. you know, kind of got me connected to society in the first place. So I said, we could do this and we could tell people what it's like down here and we could give them access to things that they wouldn't have access to. And maybe they could see some of the historical pictures and they could get some of those stories. And when they came, particularly when it wasn't an open house day, it would be a more meaningful thing for them to share with the rest of their families. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what the genesis of the blog was. And then it just turned out I really liked it yeah. um, and tried different vehicles to, to share it. And we've got a couple of different archives on the blog, one of photographs that we've taken in our years there and the more historical based archive is there. Mm -hmm. um, we have links to a YouTube channel now. So when we have a good video day and I think, in fact, the relighting of the light is out there on the, the YouTube channel for the society. Mm -hmm. And that's linked through the blog. So 21st century teaching is different than it once was and I never want to be behind and blogs are part of that now yeah. and so that's why I do it yeah well it's a great adjunct to the whole operation and uh, becomes part of the historic record I mean sometimes you write about history but about even about your the life uh, you and your family have there that's uh, that's a part of the history of the place for sure so it's nice it's being recorded you talked about you know people talking to you and asking you questions all the time let me just ask you i've heard from other people living at lighthouses going back to the days of, of keepers that uh most people are very respectful and very nice but occasionally you, I, I imagine you might get somebody knocking at your door at, at weird times and stuff like that does that happen there's a lot of people around all the time many don't know that people live there mm -hmm. um, and so they're kind of unconscious about what they have what they're saying and have they have no sense that I'm hearing them so when you do bring that to their attention that, that can make things interesting I've only I think I've only called the police five or six times in each I think four out of the six times it was because I thought somebody had put themselves in harm's way mm -hmm. out at the end of the jetty that you yeah. know out on that spindle light yeah. in bad weather but the people knock and they dock at unusual hours, but mostly they're just loud, yeah. and you have to go out, and they sing a lot. They sing very early in the morning. <laughs> um, they sing, I mean, it just becomes a long day. But when you go out and you point out, they like, you can hear us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we've heard breakups. We've had lots of proposals. That's probably one of the real fun things that happens, and it's, usually set up in advance and we try to fool the bride yep. like well I'm not sure I like him but you seem like a nice girl so I'm gonna let you in <laughs> mm. we do that a lot 
And then when they come down, we tell them to call her mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Make sure they, they pass the word on to mom as soon as possible. The most interesting guest we had was the daughter of a former keeper. Mm-hmm. She was, in fact, uh, John Cushman's uh, daughter, and she was quite elderly. And she came in and opened her house day. And, you know, to be able to sit with a woman in her 90s who remembered the house in the, mm-hmm. in the 19-teens and 1920s was astounding. It's just, a, yeah, just an astounding feeling. Um, really, really special day. Yeah. You mentioned your daughter a few minutes ago. I think she was about 10 when you moved in. Uh, so she's uh, lived a large percentage of her life there. What's it been like for her living at a lighthouse? I think she has mixed emotions about it. Um, but largely it was, and I knew it when we, when I applied, it was actually in the letter I wrote applying. I said, I'm his, you know, I'm, I'm certainly would like to consider myself a historian. And I don't think it's too, I'm not too corny to say you want to give back to your hometown because I'm a proud member of the class of 78, Situate High. And, but I knew it was going to make the world bigger for her. And it just gave her a skill set that other kids just don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so of all the things that probably influenced Haley the most, I, I would say that was it. Uh, without a doubt, she just is so, she's gonna, she hates it when I say this, but she's very easy with people. Uh-huh. She's a good listener. She wants to know their stories. Um, she's, she's got that. And I think I probably tell this story too much, but I'll tell it again, that when she was little and we were just appointed, she got cold feet to say the least and said, let's not do this. Let's stay home. I said, well, A, you're nine, so you don't get to decide. Hmm. <laughs> and B, this is what's gonna happen. I said, you're gonna know all the stories and you're gonna be out in the yard and somebody's gonna come up to the fence and it's gonna be Mel and Myrna from Manitoba. And they're gonna tell you all the things they've seen between Situate and Manitoba and they're gonna tell you all their stories and you're gonna tell all our stories. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and I watched the little gears turn for a little bit and she said, who else is coming? <laughs> and that's when I knew I had her. Yeah, yeah. And she's still that kid. It's a, she's in a great tradition of Lighthouse Keepers kids. You know, a good friend of mine, Simon Ponsart Roberts, down in Louisiana now, but grew up at Lighthouses in Massachusetts, and she would take, you know, visitors up the tower and stuff and um, maybe, maybe get a nickel or a dime if she was lucky. But uh, there's a, a long, great tradition of, of that at Lighthouses. So I have one uh, more question about living there for you, Bob. I mean, again, maybe we can do this again sometime because there's just so so many aspects of it. But uh, have you had any memorable storms in your years there? There are really two that stick out um, more than the others. So in December of 2010, we weren't there all that long. But the day after Christmas, there was a significant blizzard that broke a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sh- little shed that is off the runway between the house and the tower. And that wall was caved in. By one of the storms and the retaining stones in front of the light one of them was just flat out gone I'd give anything for a picture of my face as I came around the corner to see that stone gone um, so in 2000 I call that the Boxing Day blizzard and that was a um, that was a real nasty one and um, at about quarter of two that morning I did see a wave go about three quarters the height of the light and that broke the fences in the backside and shortly after that one came down the sidewalk and we just heard it take all the fence with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that, that certainly stuck out. That was a, a learning curve on that one. In March, I'm going to say of 18, we had nine consecutive tides that were really, really high tides. I remember that. And that actually broke the flagpole off the tower mm-hmm. in the wind that day. And that was certainly memorable as well. That flagpole had been there 50 years yeah. and seen a lot of weather. Yeah. 
yeah. that but that storm got it and my daughter and I spent all of Hurricane Sandy at the top of the light mm. and we watched that storm from the top of the light those are the three I keep track of every storm with a golf ball there's always a golf ball in the yard after a mm -hmm. storm and they're all mounted in my office wow. and with a date of each storm Oh, I remember that those uh, that period of extreme high tides in 2018, even up north in my area, where in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, it was like that. So, uh, just a, a question just occurred to me that any of you can take, or any or all of you, or none of you, if you don't want to answer it. But th this makes me wonder if uh, do you see uh, or do you think there's uh, is that climate change is having an effect at, at this point, or is it something you're planning for in the future, or any just any thoughts on that? I've been there now 14 years, and I grew up right up the street, so I, I think it's an area that I can speak to with some authority uh, over 50-plus years now. Um, there's a berm that runs alongside the, the inner of the two jetties. It simply wasn't there when I moved in 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous amount of material that's just coming over that wall and coming over that wall. I don't want to. I don't know what to attribute it to, other than the storms seem to last a little longer, and they tell me that that is a link to a change in climate. That the storms stall yeah. and and have that impact. The smaller of the two jetties is pretty much broken in sixty places, uh, and, and it. You know, we were as kids, we rode our bikes the length of it, and left our bikes out out on there. Yeah. And the larger jetty, which was repaired just a few years ago, is already damaged so badly that. I kind of have a pool going in my head of what date it's going to break through. Yeah. So something's different. Well, I'll add my thoughts to it as well. Um, yes, the tides are getting a little higher. Uh, historically, since 1921, the, the total height of the tide on an average day was about 10 inches higher than it was at that point in time. So that's about 100, well, a little over 100 years. I don't see that the tides, or at least up to this point in time, they have not been rapidly increasing. The other thing that, that really is a, troubles me to some extent is that people they throw out these, these facts of that, that storms are getting much worse, and that really isn't true. If you think back, and I'm sure, Jeremy, you are well aware of it, 1851, the um, first minute light was toppled over. That's really the storm of record. Probably it was even worse than the blizzard of 1978 in terms of surge and wave height and everything else. There was a horrendous hurricane in 1815 that struck the south coast of New England. The hurricane of 1938, 1944, 1954, there were two hurricanes. Yeah. So the frequency of storms isn't any worse than, than, than it has been, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the tide heights are slowly increasing, but we'll have to see how it, how it plays out in the future. So far, I, I'm not too alarmed. Well, of course, the, the bottom line is with a, a lighthouse uh, situated where yours is, uh, not, not a whole lot you can do to protect it except maybe someday move it. Short of that, I'm not sure what, what could be done. Yeah, and Bob mentioned the storm in 2010. Uh, I believe, Bob, that revetment that is in place now, that was put in after that. Yeah, right? so in, yeah. It, the town, David initiated the, a project to add revetment stone, break, you know, breaking stone out in front of the tower mm -hmm. uh, after that 2010 storm. And the town took it to a next level and they built a higher revetment. Right. 
the prior wall, the, the guys that built the revetman told me there was nothing in the prior wall that weighed more than 300 pounds. There are stones now that are over to, or at 20 tons. So I often describe it as the difference between a snare drum and a bass drum. Mm -hmm. The old wall would just roll all night long, and now we get more, much more bang. It's also four feet higher. When I said there was nothing you could do except move the lighthouse, that's not entirely true, obviously. So the revetment has made a big difference. So, uh, Dave, I want to pursue something that we brought up a couple of times earlier. Uh, the Etrusco, or I've also heard it pronounced Etrusco. <laughs> that's a very bad Italian uh, accent there. But uh, Etrusco or Etrusco, a very famous wreck, Italian ship in 1956. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was the granddaddy of shipwrecks for Situate. Uh, there had been, you know, there's been a couple of hundreds since the 1600s. Uh, there was the Elizabeth in 1859 that came ashore right where the, the Etrusco also came ashore. And Bob mentioned the fact that they had found some structural timbers from the Elizabeth when they were digging away to get the Etrusco off the beach. The Etrusco came ashore in a uh, big winter blizzard in March 1956. I remember that winter well. I was a kid at the time, but um, I remember sitting in my class in high school, and the teacher was saying, you know, we're not going to get winters like we used to because look at this. The grass was green around the school. We hadn't had a single snowstorm, and that was around the 1st of March. And then we had this huge blizzard on March 16th, 1956. The Etrusco had been coming over from Europe. It was coming into Boston Harbor to pick up a load of grain. It was uh, empty at the time. The voyage over from Europe was uneventful, except they had to stop at the Azores to drop off a sick crew member. And so it got to Boston Harbor just as the storm was starting up in the early afternoon. The Port Authority told the captain the heat could not come into the harbor because it was too dangerous to put a pilot on board. So he was instructed to sail either further out to sea or take some down toward the Cape and try to get into the lee of the Cape. Because of the, the fact that there was no cargo on the ship, it was riding high. It was almost like a cork sitting in the water. The wind and the, the, the sea was overwhelmed the ship, and it came ashore about 8 o'clock that night. All night long, it was driven further and further up the beach. They rescued the crew by breaches buoy around 6.30 in the morning. And then, I, I know a lot of this, by the way, because I was able to contact a crewman that was on the ship. Uh, he was an Italian guy, uh, and I was able to communicate with him by email for quite a few years. He has since passed away, unfortunately. But anyway, um, the ship sat on the beach all summer long. The Italian company that owned the ship sold the ship to uh, four guys, essentially, and they had put together their money to, to buy the ship, about 10 cents on the dollar. They paid about $121,000 for the hull. They hired a guy who was a, a retired rear admiral in the Navy. He developed a, a way of getting the ship off the beach by setting out sea anchors about 1,500 feet out mm -hmm. and set on the deck of the ship uh, air compressors to run the, the, to run the winches. So they slowly pulled the ship from parallel to shore to uh, 90 degrees offshore. Thanksgiving Day uh, was the day that they pulled it off the beach. 
Uh, they took it to Boston, did some initial repairs, towed it to uh, Baltimore for final repairs. This crewman that I was telling you about um, was on another vessel the next year, and he was telling the captain of his new ship about this um, experience he had on a Tresco of grounding, and it was, he said, told the captain on the other ship, it was the scariest moment of his entire career to that point. Mm-hmm. So um, he was telling the captain this whole thing, and he noticed off in the distance a ship approaching. And he said, that looks just like the ship that I was telling you about that, that grounded at Situate, Massachusetts. And as they got closer, the captain of the new ship that this crewman was on got a little bit closer to the vessel and noticed that the name of the ship was Situate. Mm. And what had happened, because the, the owners of the ship had appreciated all the, the welcoming that had taken place when the ship and, and the uh, cooperation, they decided to rename the ship Situate. So it had a nice conclusion to it. Today, there's a medical organization, it's called a lending library of medical equipment. Mm-hmm. They will loan out crutches and wheelchairs and that kind of thing to people, and it's called the Etrusco Associates. So the ship kind of lives on in Situate even today. Yeah, I know it was quite the tourist attraction during that period when it was on the beach near the lighthouse. There were some weekends when there were 50,000 people went out to see that ship. Wow. And I can remember, uh, I live right down the street from it, and my father would be constantly complaining that you couldn't even you know, back out of your driveway without you know, having somebody stand on the street to stop the traffic. Yeah. It was just constant. I think I recently saw a picture of you, Dave, uh, with the Etrusco, be- or Tr- Etrusco behind you. Uh, yeah, yeah, that. yeah. That when I... Uh, the society gave me a nice party in June, and they used that picture. I was sitting out on the jetty looking at the ship yeah. at some point in time, probably close to the time when they pulled it off the beach. Yeah. Uh, I have a postcard in my collection, as probably all of you do, and thousands of people do uh, a, a postcard of the Etrusco on the beach with the lighthouse yeah, in the yeah. picture as well. Mrs. Russo um, was Italian, and she grew up in the town next to the town the captain grew up in. Mm-hmm. So she could speak Italian. So her house was where the crew went, and I guess it was quite a mess after a while. Wasn't it covered with oil and everything else? <laughs> but it was, you know, a kind of cool story. And we have a life preserver in here that Dave painted Mrs. Russo's house, and she couldn't pay him, so we took the life preserver in payment. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's neat. That's a good story. So there's so much we can talk about, and I hope we can do this again sometime, but Bob, Chessia, I have one more question for you related to the Lighthouse today. What, as we speak, is the current status of any kind of tours or open houses at the Lighthouse? Um, presently, we could not get anyone to sign off on letting people into the actual tower. You can walk around it, but we don't let anyone in. Mm-hmm. So. Might that change with the restoration that's going to oh, be Oh, absolutely, happening? yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then we'll have people in again okay so maybe in probably not next year it sounds like but maybe by the year after if things go well we're hoping 2023 for sure next year okay i hope so that'd be fantastic so i have one more question this is for each of you you each have to take a turn with this one and this is for bonus points okay (laughs) all right and you can fight amongst yourselves as to who's going to take it first but the question is what has been your favorite thing about your association with situate lighthouse what I really enjoy is um, the third grade tours. 
I was at the lighthouse with Dave, and my granddaughter was in third grade. <laughs> so she showed up, and of course, that's Mia's grandfather, which was kind of cool. So then after that, they were going to the museum here. Mm-hmm. And Dave said, why don't you go and meet him there? So I met him there, and then the next day, they did Lawson Tower, and my granddaughter's been out there probably over 100 times. Mm-hmm. So I had her lead the group up. And she actually, we do full moon tours at Lawson Tower. She let them, she went up four times the last time we did it. So she's, I'm trying to train her. She did, we had a, this is a little bit off subject, but someone came up and wanted a tour of some of the sites of Situate. From South Carolina, his name was Rhett Damon. So I asked him who he was related to. I found out we're related. So I picked him and his buddy up. My granddaughter Mia wanted to go. We took him around town. We did everything. We got done. And he said, can you stop at the bank for a minute? So we stopped. He gives me an envelope. We opened it up when I get back to the site. There was $500 in there. So I said, we have to have Mia do another tour. (laughs) So there were a number of people who served as keeper before me, and to find out their stories, um, William Henry Osborne was one of the keepers. He was the only keeper to be fired. And one day, his members of his family arrived with a sheath of papers, and they said, will you look these over and see if you can help us make sense of these? And it turns out that he had a son in the 1840 census when he was placed in Situate Light, and that son went on to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. I mean, that's just not going to happen to me if I'm living at 50 Lighthouse and not at, and not at 100. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, those opportunities, I mean, there's a statue at our town common to this guy, and he was twice wounded in Mulvern Hill, Virginia, and left the hospital and went back to the field of battle. Um, so to feel in any way connected to that kind of tradition or mm-hmm. what, you know, Jamie Turner never came up in this conversation. Jamie Turner in the early part of the 20th century, you know, took extraordinary steps to see to it that the town came to have control of the light mm-hmm. and later on lived there as a custodian. You know, Dave would have known him as a, when he was a kid. Yeah. It's the only impersonation I do is of Jesse Turner the night that Etrusco came aground. Jamie, what's that? Uh-uh. <laughs> That's Jamie's wife. <laughs> Jamie's wife was yeah. Jesse. Um, the the Abels have been so kind to me. Betty Foster, Betty Gillis, at the time, she's been, she's just amazing. You know, um, you know, Ruth was incredibly kind to us, and I'm trying to create a little garden. So yeah, to be part true. of that tradition is amazing. Yeah, I was just going to add, uh, that's Ruth Ruth Dowden you're speaking of, right? Who yes. I believe lived with her husband, George, George, at the lighthouse, and he passed away, but she was... She stayed on. She handed me the key on Valentine's Day 2009, mm-hmm. um, and, we lo- and she passed two, two years ago now. Yeah. Um, just to be part of that tradition is pretty awe-inspiring. I think uh, what, I, what I would want to say is when I was about six years old, I was sent up to bed early. I probably had done something bad. Uh, and we lived right down the street, and I was looking out the window toward the lighthouse, and all of a sudden, it was just around sunset. The sun started apparently hitting the glass just right, and it looked exactly like the town had finally come to their senses, in my opinion, at age six and had relit the light. And I was so thrilled, I yelled down to my mother, Ma, Ma, come upstairs. Mm-hmm. They've finally relit the light. And um, it obviously faded quickly within a couple of minutes after that, and then I realized that it hadn't happened. But it finally did happen in 1994. And you know, it had always bothered me as a very little kid. There was this cool lighthouse sitting there up the street from where I was, and it never was lit at night. And then finally, in 1994, I got my wish. 
Yeah, that's, that's awesome. a, a lighthouse isn't truly a lighthouse without a light. That's so, right. Uh, so thank you all so much, and I, I apologize if we've gone longer than you guys expected <laughs> to, but uh, again, there's, there's so much we can talk about, and uh, a tremendous history in this town and with the, the lighthouse and so many things here. So it's been a real pleasure talking to all three of you. Thank you for hosting me here at the Maritime and Irish Mossing Museum here in Situate. Thank you, uh, Bob, Bob, and Dave. Thanks so much. It's been fun. To read more about Situate Lighthouse and all the properties managed by the Situate Historical Society, visit situatehistoricalsociety.org. To read Bob Gallagher's blog about the lighthouse, visit situate-light.org. Situate Light is one of those New England lighthouses that's like an old friend. Uh, I first visited probably more than 30 years ago, and I've been there many, many times over the years. I loved doing this episode. It felt like it was uh, long overdue. As I said in the interview, I've also known Dave Ball for a long time, and I'm very grateful for all the times he shared his time and knowledge with friends and tour groups I brought to the lighthouse. Many thanks, as always, to all the members, volunteers, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Check out uslhs.org to read about the domestic and international tours and all the things the Society offers. Remember that donations support this podcast and all the education and preservation projects of the Society. Also, for anyone living near the New Hampshire or Southern Maine coast, don't forget the Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses is having a five lighthouse cruise on Saturday, September 24th. Last time I checked, there are still tickets left. I'll be narrating, and I hope to see some of our listeners on board. The 17th century English preacher and author Thomas Fuller once wrote, quote, Zeal without knowledge is fire without light, end quote. As always, thanks for listening, and... Keep a good light.